Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Richard, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce the moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. And greetings. Welcome, everybody, to today's Author in the Room, a monthly call sponsored by both JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name, again, is Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're really delighted that you could join us. Very excited about, uh, about today's call and our guest, Dr. Paul Ridker. Uh, as you know, author in the room calls are de designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in JAMA, as an example, uh, Paul's recent work, uh, into uh, actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and the next call is scheduled for Wednesday, April 18th. Uh, and the article that will be discussed is contained in the March 7th, 2007 issue, issue of JAMA, uh, Computed Tomography Screening and Lung Cancer Outcomes by Dr. Peter Bach and colleagues from Memorial Sloan Kettering. So we're excited about that call. Um, uh, Today's call, uh, again, features Dr. Paul Ritker, and the title of the article we are discussing today is The Development and Validation of Improved Algorithms for the Assessment of Global Cardiovascular Risk in Women, the Reynolds Risk Score. Uh, and the uh, first author in that article is Dr. Paul Ridker. Uh, Dr. Ridker is a Eugene Braunwald Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. He is the director for the Center of Cardiovascular Disease Prevention and the Division of Preventive Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital as well. Dr. Ridger's primary research focus has involved the molecular and genetic epidemiology of hemostasis, thrombosis, and inflammation with particular interest in biomarkers for coronary disease and predictive medicine, including the underlying causes and preventive prevention of acute coronary syndromes. Uh, welcome, Dr. Ridger. Well, Chuck, thank you very much for uh, having me today to discuss this paper. Um, you're welcome. As the moderator of the call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Ritker's research uh, with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this article. The purpose of author in the room, as I think everybody knows, is for you to hear directly from the author or authors about the research findings that can improve care. Today, Dr. Ritker and I will help translate what's in the paper into changes applicable in our collective practices. We have about an hour, and here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Ritker will spend about uh, 10 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, summarizing uh, the article's findings. Uh, we'll take just a few minutes to, uh, uh, to uh, reflect on the importance of those findings, and then we'll open the call up at about uh, 20, 25 minutes after the hour for your participation. I do want to stress how important your participation is in these calls, both your experience uh, and your questions. This is a great forum to get clarification on the article uh, on uh, the 
uh, implications of the article by hearing directly from the lead author and to contemplate with others the significance of these findings and the steps that you might take in using this information towards the improvement of care. So your participation is not just in terms of questions but offering up your experience in this area that will be helpful to others on the call. We have approximately 70 lines called in right now, though we expect uh, quite a few more are signing at this time. Uh, one other note, uh, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as a streaming uh, audio or podcasts. Complete details uh, and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Uh, prior author in the rooms are available on those sites as well. So let's get started. Again, please allow me to introduce Dr. Ritker. Uh, Dr. Ritker. Well, again, uh, thank you, Chuck. Let me begin by thanking the folks both at the JAMA for selecting this paper for author in the room today, as well as the folks at IHI uh, who put together these uh, sessions. The paper that I'm going to describe uh, is uh, a subtitled The Reynolds Risk Score, uh, and uh, this has to do with the fact that uh, our funding for this project uh, came uh, from two sources, from the National Institute of Health, which underwrites the bulk of our research effort, but also from the Donald W. Reynolds Foundation, which is a nonprofit. They're very interested in cardiovascular health care, uh, and they specifically asked us to try to do the project that uh, goes now under this name of the Reynolds Risk Corps Project. And I also should point out to uh, listeners that there's a, a nice uh, acute aspect of all this, which is that the paper really describes how to do a better job predicting risk in otherwise healthy women, and it was published on Valentine's Day, which we thought was kind of a nice gift uh, to the general medicine primary care community. And so what I'm going to do over the next uh, uh, 15 minutes or so is try to walk through four broad issues. Uh, the first, why develop a new risk prediction model in the first place? Uh, second, describe fairly briefly what we actually did uh, to generate these data. Third, to deal with what we think the biologic and public health implications of these data actually are, and then try to come back to exactly what Dr. Kylo uh, suggested, which is how do these data and how does the Reynolds risk score actually change daily practice, uh, at which point we'll take some questions and answers. So let me begin with one. Uh, the first part of this is why, why develop a new risk prediction model at all? Doesn't Framingham work pretty well? Well, the answer is yes, the Framingham Risk Score does work pretty well. Uh, it was developed uh, by a pioneering epidemiologist at the Framingham Heart Study. Uh, and if you go historically, all the way back to 1961, uh, the concept of risk factors was published by the Framingham investigators. And they really came up with five basic issues that uh, gender, uh, age, blood pressure, smoking, and cholesterol levels, uh, along with whether or not you had diabetes, really were very important for understanding cardiovascular risk. And the uh, some combination of those has really been the method by which uh, our, our federal government and the National Cholesterol Education Program and most guidelines think about dealing with risk. So it's very successful. But there are problems with the Framingham Risk Score, uh, and they can be summarized in two ways. One is straight clinical information. The first is that despite the importance of lipids, uh, nearly 50% of all heart attacks and strokes in the United States each year occur among individuals with normal cholesterol levels. That does not mean cholesterol is not a very important risk factor. It, it, it does not mean we don't want to lower cholesterol aggressively. It simply means that relying on cholesterol alone uh, is a mistake. Uh, the second reality is that four out of ten cases of heart attack and stroke occur among individuals who have essentially no prior symptoms whatsoever. 
And so the notion of warning signs for this disease are complex. The third is the most complicated issue, which is that uh, if you say, okay, half of all heart attacks and strokes don't have high cholesterol, but they have some other risk factor, well, that's not so clear. Uh, in most major surveys, somewhere between 10 and 20% of all individuals who are destined to suffer a major vascular event do not have one of those canonical major risk factors, and so the notion of is the glass half full or half empty has been quite debated. And the last is something very important for this paper, because when I complete this discussion of the clinical implications, I'm going to suggest that this is really about people at so-called intermediate risk. Now, intermediate risk defined by Framingham are people who uh, have a heavy 10-year risk of a future event, somewhere between 5 and 10 or 10 and 20 percent. This is where the action is. The problem is this is also where the Framingham score is not as good as we might want. 70% uh, of all future vascular events occur in this broad group defined as intermediate risk. And I'll come back to that over and over in this talk. The second problem of Framingham, uh, I think, is just a biologic one. Uh, uh, it ignores the fact that the pathophysiology of this disease is now radically differently understood. And as someone who has been involved in a lot of the uh, pathophysiologic changes in this field for the last 15 years, biologic insights do matter to understanding disease. And just like cholesterol was introduced some 20, 25 years ago to teach general medical audiences the importance of lipids, uh, inflammation, thrombosis, hemostasis, clotting, fibrinolysis, and genetics really do matter for this disease. And as I'll point out as we go through this, uh, it turns out that markers of inflammation and markers of genetics really can help us understand risk. So what did we actually do in the article? Uh, well, this was an interesting project. Uh, we used a cohort uh, known as the Women's Health Study. Uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Julie Buring, has been the PI of this for many years, and this was the study that uh, looked at nearly uh, 25,000 initially healthy American women all across the United States. The uh, participants in the study are mostly uh, female healthcare professionals. Uh, and back in approximately 1992 to 1993, all of these women uh, sent us a baseline blood sample uh, and, uh, uh, and allowed us to store that uh, for many years. And then these women have been in contact with us uh, ever since, uh, sending us health care information about themselves. So all 25,000 women have been followed for uh, well over 10 years. Uh, we actually know who among these initially healthy women subsequently went on to have a first-ever heart attack, a first-ever stroke, required bypass surgery or an angioplasty or died from a cardiovascular event. And I should point out right off the bat that the total number of individuals here is very large. Uh, the total number of endpoints I'm going to describe is uh, uh, almost 1,000. These are orders of magnitude larger than the data that Framingham provides us, for example, uh, in women to begin with. The second question was, beyond traditional risk factors, what can we ask these women? So we measured a total of nearly 35 potential biomarkers of risk, some of the traditional things you might want to know about, age, blood pressure, smoking, exercise, frequency, and the like. Uh, and others were novel blood markers. Uh, in addition to uh, standard uh, total and HDL cholesterol, we measured ApoA and ApoB. We measured a number of novel risk factors. My research group is uh, well known for the inflammation CRP story, but we also measured, in addition to C-reactive protein, several other measures and markers of inflammation, and we measured homocysteine and LPLA and quite a few other biomarkers. And then we did something that's unique in this field, and this is something I think that we're quite proud of in terms of the structure of this study. We decided that we would assume nothing. We would say, look, we've measured all these biomarkers. What really works to best predict the future risk of heart disease? Don't assume 
that any particular biomarker will make it into the model. And actually, for an investigator like myself who has some biologic beliefs, that's actually quite a risky procedure because it's quite possible that my favorite biomarker might not make it into the final score. But this was developed with a very talented biostatistician named Nancy Cook uh, to work this out. And what we did is we took these 25,000 women and we divided it into two groups. And we took about two-thirds of them, nearly 16,000 of them, and we used their data to actually develop this new scoring system called the Reynolds Risk Score. And then we went a major step further and we actually tested it directly against the Framingham score in the remaining 8,000 or so women. I'm not going to go through the statistical parts of this paper. They're quite complex and I'm going to try to focus really on the clinical aspects of it. What I want you to understand though is to intuit that what we've done here is built the most parsimonious prediction score we could. In other words, it's not whether or not the particular marker of interest predicts events. The vast majority of them do. The question is, do they help us clinically and do they actually change what we might do? So for example, of those 35 potential markers, it turned out that really only eight of them provided a lot of clinical information. And those eight should not be that surprising. Uh, the first five are exactly what's already in Framingham. Age, systolic blood pressure, smoking, total and HDL cholesterol. Well, that's the good news. Everything in the Framingham risk score that we've known for 40 years predicts risk made the final score. And, and that's very reassuring. It means the system probably works. The other three changes were that among those with diabetes, what the level of hemoglobin A1C was actually mattered. So a well-controlled diabetic did better than a poorly controlled diabetic. And I think for clinicians, that's pretty intuitive. But then two other pieces of information, which are not in Framingham, did enter this score. One of them was the high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, or HSCRP. This is a uh, marker of inflammation, as many are aware. Uh, and that picks up this other inflammatory process. And the last was a simple marker for genetics. Uh, the question really that made the score was, did your mom or dad have a heart attack before age 60? Uh, a yes, no to that question turned out to be important for predicting future vascular risk. Now, I should take a break here and point out that many things that a lot of us as clinicians feel are important for predicting risk turned out to be complicated. So, for example, uh, obesity, body mass index, uh, exercise frequency, these clearly predict cardiovascular events, but they actually did not make this Reynolds risk score, nor do they make the Framingham risk score. That doesn't mean that being overweight and lack of exercise are not risk factors, nor that you shouldn't lose weight, nor that you shouldn't exercise. But what it does tell you is that whatever it is about exercise and obesity that matters is being uh, picked up by blood pressure, by cholesterol, by CRP. Similarly, a lot of other novel biomarkers did predict risk but did not help us clinically. So for example, LP little a, homocysteine, and uh, what I would call some sort of second generation or fancy lipids, uh, APOA, APOB. Yes, they predicted events, but actually they again did not change our ability to get a parsimonious risk prediction model. So in, in a way, partly to our surprise, but I think a very good thing clinically, uh, this very short list of things actually seem to matter. Age, blood pressure, smoking, total HDL cholesterol, uh, the CRP, and family history. But that's only part one of the project. That was sort of what did we find that predicted who among these healthy women would go on to have a future heart attack, stroke, or die of a cardiovascular event. The second part of the Reynolds Risk Score Development Project is in a way the most exciting part because we said, okay, 
we took this random two-thirds, there's 16,000 of these individuals, to get this new risk score. Now let's do something that's simply never been done before. Let's actually directly compare how the new score works against, say, the Framingham risk score among this remaining 8,200 women who were not part of the original group that was used to develop the score. So we're actually going to validate this. And validation is very important for trying to decide, should I use it in my clinic or not? Well, here is where the data get, from my perspective, very exciting. So we're asking the question, what really works better, the Framingham risk score or this new Reynolds risk score? Now, again, in the actual manuscript is a complicated, uh, large table looking at a lot of statistical measures. And suffice to say that for all statistical aspects of this, the new Reynolds risk score outperformed the Framingham risk score. But I think that's quite a complex argument, and I want to make the clinical argument instead. And that is, who does it matter for and, and what kind of benefit are we getting? So to summarize the second half of our paper, uh, the following is what we need to understand. If you use a scoring system like Framingham, or if you kind of eyeball it across the room with your patients, you generally decide, aha, Mrs. Smith seeing me in clinic today has a 10-year risk of less than 5%, 5 to 10%, 10 to 20%, or greater than 20%. And as listeners are well aware, uh, we recommend statins and aggressive therapy for anyone with a value greater than 20% 10-year risk. And many of us believe that aggressive therapy should be used for people with 10 to 20% risk, and the current guidelines actually suggest that's a, a, a rational thing to do. So we classified everybody in one of those groups according to Framingham. Then we classified everybody according to the Reynolds risk score. And then we actually said, Look, we follow these women for 10 years. We know who really went on to have a first-ever heart attack, a stroke, a cardiovascular event. Which of these scores did better? This is what's fun about this kind of research and very reassuring to us because across the board, the Reynolds risk score simply put more women into the correct bins and did so with greatly improved fidelity. In fact, uh, one of the most interesting parts of the paper is that among women who are reclassified, up or down at least one category of risk, which is enough that you would probably change your behavior in terms of whether or not to prescribe a drug or whether or not to think about how, how high the risk is. 98% of the time, when the Reynolds risk score moves somebody up or down, it put that individual into the correct bin. So the score simply works a good bit better. Now, that being said, we have to ask the question, well, who does it really work best for? And this is the last bit of the uh, actual manuscript because we found that it's really the intermediate risk group where this really matters. What's intermediate risk? Well, the definition uh, has been always uh, basically uh, those women at uh, 5 to 10% 10-year risk or those at 10 to 20% risk because, remember, this is where clinically we don't really know what to do. Do we put the woman on aspirin? Do we put her on a statin? How aggressive are we recommending uh, going to the gym, getting exercise and dieting, and, and how aggressive are we in this process? Well, recall what I said at the beginning, that 70% of all future vascular events occur among those at intermediate risk, and the Reynolds risk score, quite to our surprise, uh, reclassified nearly 50% of all women who ATP3 told us were at 5 to 10 or 10 to 20%, either up or down at least one category of risk. And a fair number of individuals went up or down two categories of risk. And again, since what we found was that the Reynolds risk score was simply better for classification, this had major changes for how we think about things. Now, I give a caveat here. For women at rather low risk, very low risk, less than 5%, 
sure, the score, the Reynolds risk score did better, but not many people are changing groups because if you're at very low risk, even if we double your risk, it's still pretty low. And I would also say for people who are at very high risk, greater than 20%, they're already at high risk. But screening in cardiovascular medicine really should focus on the intermediate risk group, and that's where this Reynolds risk score was substantially uh, superior. So what are the biologic implications of this? Well, uh, from a, someone very interested in vascular biology, we're quite excited about this because it says, yes, lipids matter, yes, age and blood pressure matter, but the two revolutions in our thinking about this disease, the recognition that we now teach our Harvard medical students on the first week of school that inflammation is a core part of atherosclerosis, well, a marker, a very inexpensive simple marker of inflammation, the high sensitivity CRP, has been introduced in the Framingham score. And the second is genetics. We all recognize that family history is important. Many of us in the research community are doing these very large-scale genome-wide studies. And here we have hard evidence that whether or not mom or dad had a heart attack before age 60 really did make a difference. So biologically, very exciting because we're taking this new biology of inflammation and genetics and, and putting it into the uh, Framingham risk score. The public health implications of this may be what our questions and answers are about. And I'll just give you my quick opinion about this. Uh, since 70% of all future vascular events, at least in women, occur among this intermediate group, intermediate risk group, and because uh, most women uh, either get under or overestimated by Framingham, uh, we believe this is a much better clinical tool for helping us to determine how to prevent heart disease in women. Uh, women are a tough group to take care of because our risk estimates are based on pretty small sample sizes in the past. Uh, and the other nice thing about this Reynolds risk score is that uh, it's actually quite efficient and, and very inexpensive to put into place. There was some concern when we began that what if 17 or 18 of these different biomarkers was required to predict events? Well, that would have been a quite a complicated score and a very expensive one. As it turns out, the only thing being added is the high sensitivity CRP and the yes-no question of family history, and it works very, very nicely. The second is that... Uh, uh, we don't require here anything that can't be done by a primary care physician uh, in an outpatient setting. The reason this is important to me is that I think that radiologic procedures looking for risk detection, EBCT, MRI, whatever, uh, have put the locus of control in the hands of the radiologist rather than the primary care physician. And I don't think that's a great idea for prevention. I think the people who actually take care of the patient and talk to the patients have to be the ones who can interpret the data and put it into practice. And the last issue is a very exciting one for us. Uh, we believe that the Reynolds Risk Score provides a very nice win-win for everybody involved in this system. Uh, it's, it's a method to get the right drug to the right patient. Uh, for example, uh, if we now know that many people at in intermediate risk are either higher or lower than we would have thought of if we did not take the, the, the biology of inflammation genetics into account, uh, we now know the following. Uh, for those whose risk is truly quite high, we can clearly increase the clinical effectiveness of writing that prescription for aspirin or a statin because we know we have the right patients. And then the other, the other flip of the coin is for those whose risk is actually much lower than we would have anticipated, well, we have a method here, very inexpensive, easy to use, that avoids toxicity and the cost of these preventive drugs among uh, those women who really are at much lower risk uh, than we would have thought. So the last piece that I want to end with before opening this up for questions is, is, is the fourth part of this discussion, which is really uh, what the Dr. Kylo asked me to talk about, which is how, how will the Reynolds risk score uh, potentially change my daily practice of medicine? And I can only give you my own sense of this, having had access to these data for uh, 
uh, uh, several months prior to its publication, we started using this in our outpatient clinics. Uh, and it's really quite effective. Uh, it brings to mind to us that there are many individuals uh, who appear to be healthy, uh, whose risk is a good bit higher than we would have thought. There are others whose risk is actually a good bit lower. Uh, and I thought for today's discussion, I would just uh, give you an example of an actual participant in the Women's Health Study uh, who happened to be a 72-year-old, uh, sorry, a 66-year-old woman who, who was not diabetic. Uh, she's not a smoker. Uh, her systolic blood pressure was a little elevated, 145. Her total cholesterol, a little up, 231. HDL, not too bad, 57. Uh, and if you were to put all that into the standard Framingham risk score or ATP3 calculator, she would come out at 4.2% 10-year risk or very low risk. Well, uh, her actual CRP turned out to be 3.3. That's above the threshold uh, that puts her at higher risk. And it turns out that uh, uh, both her mother and father had suffered a heart attack before age 60, giving her the genetic component of her risk. And so even though ATP3 said she was only at 4% risk, when we put her into the Reynolds risk score, she came out to be at nearly 15 or 16% risk, someone who we probably would have intervened on. Now, we didn't know that 10 years ago when we started the study, and unfortunately this 66-year-old woman went on to suffer myocardial infarction at age 72. And the question obviously is, well, what if we had known this information? Would we have changed our behavior? Would we have put her on some therapies to prevent disease? And, and would that have helped us out? I obviously believe it would have. It's kind of the driving force for why we do the research we do is to help out patient care. Uh, and the Reynolds Foundation had asked us to go one major step further in this regard, which was not just to write a academically oriented paper that would get through peer review at a very high quality journal like the JAMA, but also to produce something that would potentially change clinical practice. So uh, at the very end of the article uh, is a paragraph that describes the fact that there's a, uh, a website uh, that clinicians can, can freely download and use. And, and that website uh, uh, is www.reynoldsriskscore.org, uh, reynoldsriskscore.org. Uh, and if you go there, which I really encourage you to do, uh, you'll see quite a user-friendly, patient-friendly website that uh, describes how to use this in an outpatient setting. And when you go to the uh, ReynoldsRiskScore.org website, uh, what you see are some places where you can plug in the cholesterol and the age and the, uh, uh, the, the blood pressure and the CRP and the family history data. And, and what you get coming out of it uh, is quite interesting. Uh, not only do you get the Reynolds Risk Score estimate of 10-year risk, which very often is similar to Framingham, very often is quite different, but more importantly, you also get what I call the aging factor. Uh, remember that true for both men and women, if you're young, if you're 40 years old, uh, no matter whether you smoke or are hyperlipidemic and have very high blood pressure, your risk is quite low over the next 10 years, but your lifelong risk is very high. And uh, one of the things we've tried to do here is get out of this box of just predicting 10-year risk, but also predicting lifelong risk. So if you go to this website, you'll see that, yes, you can get a standard estimate of 10-year risk, just like you would get if you used a standard Framingham score. But in addition, you can age your patient. So say I put in values for a 52-year-old woman and I got a, a Reynolds risk score, say, of 5% or something. I can then say, well, what would happen if she was 62, 72, and 82 years old and never changed her risk habits? 
And at the very bottom of this particular Reynolds Risk Score website is a very nice little thing that says, well, what if that woman had done all the right things, had, had, had uh, lost some weight, had gotten her cholesterol down, had controlled her blood pressure, et cetera? You get an estimate of what optimal risk would have been for her. So now you have a real way of showing the patients, aha, here's where you sit today. Here's where it would be if you had optimal risk factors. And here's where you're going to be 10, 20, 30 years down the road if we don't work together to do something about this risk. And that really is where the website has been most exciting to us. So, uh, uh, Chuck, in a nutshell, that's what we tried to do here. Uh, I didn't want to bog down our listeners with a lot of statistical arguments about how we got there, but that's really the functional process of how the Reynolds Risk Score really works. Thank you very much, uh, Paul. This really is a, a fantastic contribution, I think, to uh, clinical care. And uh, we want to move towards your questions and or comments at this point. The area that we can't talk about, the areas are really quite broad. Paul and I spent an hour, I think, digging into this just when we were preparing for the call. And Paul, Paul I know, spends hours doing that regularly. Uh, we could easily talk about how do you create risks risk scores like this. It's a fascinating topic. And, and then certainly, how do you use them and how do we put them into clinical practice? That is more, I think, the interest of this call. And so we should talk about, in particular, how do we get the Reynolds risk score into practice? Um, and what about the Framingham risk score? What about the difference now between men and women and how do we juggle those two things? Uh, all of this is, uh, is open for your comments and or questions, and uh, we look forward to them. Uh, Richard? At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, please press 0 and then the 1 key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may first state your name and then ask your question. So again, that's 01 on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to, re wish to remove yourself from the question queue, press 0 then the 2 key. There will be one moment for question. Our first question comes from Beth at St. Michael's Hospital. Beth, please go ahead. Yeah, hi, Beth Abramson, preventive cardiologist in Toronto with an interest in women. And I'm enjoying your discussion in paper, but I have a few questions about a comparison of using a modified Framingham because it has implications in terms of care and how we teach GPs, at least in Canada, GPs or GPs, to implement guidelines. And we're getting primary care physicians to finally calculate a Framingham risk score. And we double, as you know, there's epidemiologic data, about 1.5, 1.7-fold increased risk for family history. We just, I suggest we double, and the guidelines suggest we double, we increase risk for family history. So once you've done that, how much incremental benefit are we going to have by changing to this risk score or adding CRP in all of our moderate risk patients? Well, sure. So Beth is asking a very reasonable question about uh, how do you practically implement this and how much better does it become? Uh, and that's really what the core analysis this is all about. So, so Beth, as you are well aware, uh, for many of the women you're seeing up in Canada are technically at very low risk. And uh, so if they're, you know, a woman who's at 1% or 2% risk is not going to have a substantial change with anything that we're describing here. Uh, however, for the uh, people who are in that 5 to 10 and 10 to 20% uh, risk group, there's major shifts in risk going on uh, when you simply use this rather than Framingham. Now, I have to tell you, part of the tension that, of your question is, uh, uh, when do I use a better tool? 
And the analogy I've used at the NIH as well as at the American Heart Association is really a very simple one, which it's kind of like having to repair something that's broken in my house that has a Phillips head screwdriver and I'm trying to use a regular screwdriver. Well, why not just use the Phillips head screwdriver the first time and get the job done very quickly and efficiently? And we believe that's the way to deal with this. Um, it turns out that uh, because the cost of screening this way is, is minimally different, uh, that we would rather just get the information and be done with it rather than going through a two-step or three-step approach, which has been sort of the way some people look at this. Again, we're not needing to go to some sort of a fancy MRI or EBCT or something else here, uh, and we already have to put the needle in the patient's arm to measure their uh, uh, lipid levels. And again, we found no utility at all of the fancier lipids that we measured at the end of this process. So uh, I think you're right. I think family history matters. Uh, we think inflammation matters a great deal. Uh, and then it becomes an issue of, of how do you want to go about this process. But again, it really boils down to if the goal of using something like the Framingham Risk Score is to help direct prevention, why wouldn't you just use a better one in, in the first place? Fantastic. Richard, next call. Our next question comes from Emory University. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Andrew D. Philippus. Um, I might be listed as Terry Jacobson. He's a mentor of mine. I'm just junior <laughs> faculty. I was wondering if you can comment. I'm trying to get my hands around how accurately the model is, or uh, not compared to Framingham, but just in kind of raw numbers. It's, it's hard to get your hands around a C statistic. And um, what I did was look at table four and try to add up the actual event rates and compare it, and then and they don't seem to be very close, and I don't know if I'm doing that correctly, but I was wondering if you can comment on how well the prediction model worked when you actually looked at the actual event rates. Uh, sure. So uh, people down at Emory are pretty savvy and bright, so this is a good question to think about in terms of the statistical issues involved here. This is a very statistically uh, sophisticated analysis, and uh, there's a table three uh, in the paper that really deals with a number of measures of global fit, something called entropy, something called the Yates slope, Breyer scores. You mentioned the C statistic, but actually most statisticians feel the C statistic is a rather poor way of looking at model fit, and if you want to discuss that, we, we certainly can. Uh, what you're asking about specifically is, is in Table 4 where we're now actually trying to show what do the observed actual risks look like compared to the predicted risks. And actually, this is where the Reynolds risk score does extremely well. Uh, I'll just use one example here. So there's a section where it suggests that the ATP3 uh, suggests that I'm actually looking at table five, if you have it in front of you, because that's, that's the true Reynolds risk score. ATP3 suggests that uh, people should be between 5 and 10% risk, but the Reynolds risk score put 50% of them either higher or lower, and that line of data that says actual event rate lines up much closer with the Reynolds risk score than with the ATP3 score. That's actually the whole point of the paper. Uh, so what you've done now is put these individuals in the correct bin uh, when they do move up or down. I don't know if that helps or not. Uh, interesting question about, uh, about methodology, and we appreciate that. Uh, Richard, next call. Our next question comes from the strategy group. Please go ahead. Yes, hi. Um, my name is Katie Adams, and I'm here with Karen Grinnan. Um, and we were curious, um, the Reynolds risk 
score.org website. Um, what sort of traffic have you seen on that, or how is that being um, publicized with primary care physicians? And I'll well, uh, uh, outside of something like this call, this is, I guess, the part of the purpose of, of what the, the JAMA was very helpful to us in allowing us to put the uh, Reynolds Risk Score website into the actual manuscript. And as I say, the, the Reynolds Foundation felt that clinical application of this was very important. Uh, we're not doing any particular sort of uh, uh, promotion of this. We just believe that physicians will uh, recognize uh, a valuable product when they see it. It's a free thing. You just go there and download it. I'm, I'm not sure what you're getting at in terms of uh, other other issues. Okay, you, and it was a great. It's a great question, and it will be, I think, interesting to track how many people use it. We know that, you know, uh, in general, because of system design issues, it is very challenging for folks just to use uh, on a very consistent basis the Framingham Risk Score. I would say the number of practices around the country that use it consistently in almost all of its patient population has got to be fleetingly small. <laughs> Not that physicians don't try to do it, but they try to do it sort of on the fly from the hip as opposed to every every patient in the practice will be appropriately risk stratified. We do that. We have a, in, in my practice, we have uh, the uh, Framingham risk score built into our electronic health record and whenever somebody comes in as a new patient, they get appropriately risk stratified. We have done that, uh, use the same scoring process on uh, men and women together and now we're going to be challenged to uh, understand how to treat women differently than men and how to build that into our electronic health records. Uh, and then we use that as a guide to uh, managing risk and managing, in particular, cholesterol management. What we see is a tremendous number of people coming into practice. I would say these days, less that are undertreated, for example, diabetics who are, who are not on a statin as new patients. But what we do see is new patients coming in who are really in the low-risk uh, category, who've been treated with a statin for a long time, where the, where the benefit is, uh, is probably marginal at best, probably possibly no benefit at all. And, uh, and so the question is, how can a practice like ours or any practice begin to take these tools and get them into really regular use? And I think we're challenged in that regard. Uh, you know, we use, we can use a Framingham score while HDL is, is, uh, is in there. We can use it without getting any labs beforehand. I think we're, and then reinterpreting it when we do get the labs back, we're a little bit challenged now because now we need to get a C-reactive protein in, in addition, and that, that influences the score. So maybe Paul can speak to some of those usability issues, which I, th I think are, are really critical. I know from our perspective, anytime we have to go out to an external website with a, with a product that's not actually built into our electronic health record, uh, sure. it, 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 adds, it adds a layer of complexity to usability, which is, uh, which is challenging. Sure. So uh, uh, there's a number of issues wrapped up in, in what you just laid out, Chuck, and I'm going to try to tease some of them apart. Um, one of them is the notion of, well, do I really need the CRP or not? Uh, and I should point out that there's now, you know, 25 major prospective cohort studies worldwide in men and women, and every single one has consistently found the same thing, which is to say that regardless of your other risk factors, after you take into account, you know, all the other components of Framingham, that HSCRP levels of less than 1, 1 to 3, and greater than 3 correlate quite well to lower, moderate, and higher relative risk. And just like LDL or HDL, as you incorporate that into a risk model, you do get a better risk precision. More importantly, there are a large number of patients who are at low risk in terms of cholesterol 
who are at high risk because their HSCRP is elevated. And so the false reassurance we give our patients because their cholesterol is low is part of the biology driving this. Now, the tension has been, well, if your other Framingham risk factors are very low, do I need to measure this? And I would argue that, well, actually, if the total Framingham score is only 1% or 2%, probably not. But actually, I'm not so sure why we're measuring LDL and HDL either in that setting, because they're not going to have enough impetus to change it either. But the obverse has been pointed out to me by many people who do healthcare economics, which is that actually bringing a patient back for a second blood draw just to measure their CRP because you waited to measure it until you had the Framingham score back turns out to be very cost ineffective. In other words, since I have to put the needle into my patient's arm to measure total HDL cholesterol, it's far less expensive and burdensome on the patient to bring them back for a second blood draw and a second physician's visit and a second parking you know, cost, et cetera, just to avoid having done it in the first place. And at a cost of efficacy level, that's a pretty good argument, I think. But there's a third piece of this that you alluded to, which was that do we currently over-treat? Uh, one of the unique things about the data in this paper is that we point out that the proportion of individuals who get their absolute risk increased by the Reynolds risk score is remarkably close to the number who get their absolute risk decreased. So we're not talking here about more drugs. We're trying to figure out a way to get the drug to the patients who really need it while avoiding the toxicity and cost of those who frankly may be overtreated right now and probably don't need it. But there's a big caveat in this, which I have to make sure our listeners are aware of, which is that I'm the principal investigator of a very large multinational trial called JUPITER. Uh, and JUPITER is a uh, major clinical trial. This is asking a core question about who to give statins to. So JUPITER says, look, uh, my research group showed many years ago that patients with low cholesterol but elevated CRP are at quite high risk. And we showed many years ago that statin drugs not only lower LDL, but they also lower CRP levels. Uh, other data from our group a couple years ago showed that in acute coronary syndromes, uh, the level you got your CRP down to was at least as important as the level you got your LDL down to in terms of predicting recurrent events. And all of this led to a problem, which you've alluded to, which is what do I do with patients who are in primary prevention, but they have a low cholesterol level? below 130 milligram per deciliter who we would not normally put on a statin because they're below the treatment target in primary prevention and yet have an elevated CRP. Well, that's the Jupiter trial. So we have nearly 18,000 uh, middle-aged men and women randomized worldwide, uh, about 4,000 in the United States and about 2,000 in Canada. What they have in common is they don't qualify for statins because their native LDL is uh, below 130 yet they're at increased risk because their CRP is elevated. And in a fully double-blinded manner, we've given half of them statin and half of them placebo. And that trial's ongoing. Uh, and so we'll know at the end of that study, should we or should we not put all these individuals who have an elevated CRP in the absence of a high cholesterol on a statin in order to prevent vascular events. Now, obviously, as PI of that study and as the individual who wrote the protocol, uh, we have some feelings about what, what it might find, but it's also a very controversial trial because it might not. And we have to wait for that kind of data to figure out, am I going to treat this high CRP, low cholesterol patient? But in the meantime, the Reynolds risk score immediately gives us a way to say, aha, we already believe we should treat someone with a statin 
in a conservative environment if their 10-year risk is greater than 20%, and in a more aggressive environment if their 10-year risk is greater than 15%, 14%, 13 some threshold we all have. Well, this is clearly a method available right now that says, aha, some of these patients are at much higher risk than I thought, some are at much lower risk than I thought, by simply incorporating the biology of these two factors, the family history and the CRP. And I think that's where the field kind of sits. Really good discussion. Um, let's go on to the next question. Richard? Our next question comes from St. Michael's Hospital. Please go ahead. Hi, it's Andrea. I'm a student in, in St. Michael's Hospital. I've asked for a unit. You said your, um, your study did 25,000 women. Are the chances of men being um, advantageous to men the uh, Reynolds force also, or is it just Reynolds force, just particularly for females? Okay, so terrific question, which boils down to uh, this is a study of women, what about men? Uh, so to be explicit, the ReynoldsRiskScore.org website only deals with women uh, because the data in this study were generated from women, and therefore if you plug in values for men, you're going to get some funny answers, not because the biology is wrong, but simply because the beta coefficients that go into this model are really designed for women. But let me answer your question biologically. Uh, there are many, many studies looking at uh, high-sensitivity CRP that show the exact same phenomena in men. In fact, our original data exactly 10 years ago, all the way back in 1997 when we published the first study of this phenomena, was actually a study of men where we showed that the elevated CRPs predicted risk. So it clearly works in men in terms of inflammation, and there's uh, abundant data that shows that the same question about family history works just as well in men. So while I can't give you a formula to plug the actual numbers into for men, as Dr. Kylo already pointed out, many of us sort of do the Framingham risk score a little on the fly. We don't actually use the actual algorithm, but we say to ourselves, does this person uh, have, a, have an age above something? Do they have high blood pressure? Do they have diabetes or high cholesterol? In my practice, I now say, in addition, do they have an elevated CRP, and is there a family history? And I kind of integrate all that together if I'm not going to formally sit down and calculate the score. And that's the core message of this, really, for everyday clinicians. I recognize, as does Dr. Kylo, that the number of practices that actually are set up to, to truly compute a score is very small. The reason we put this website on the, out on the net for free is to help people do that. But many physicians, I believe, at least at a minimum, should think about what the components of this risk ought to be. And certainly in my practice, and I think these data support that, it will be equally true in men, we now integrate not just age, blood pressure, smoking. We also integrate inflammation as picked up by CRP and family history, and we use that together to do this. So that being said, the last piece is that uh, we are working directly with the Framingham investigators themselves. Uh, and we already know that this works just fine in Framingham in terms of risk prediction. The CRP has been shown to work very well in Framingham. Family history has been shown to work very well in Framingham. And, of course, Framingham has, uh, uh, if anything, far more men than women uh, in it. The, uh, uh, Paul, the family history you use, the definition is a little bit different than Framingham, is it not? Well, uh, actually, it, it, it's, it's, it's quite similar, really. Um, uh, uh, you, can, you, you can look at the epidemiologists, and sometimes people say, well, it's a, a, a parental history before age 50 or age 55 or age 60 or age 65, and this is an epidemiologic 
uh, process one can go through. We picked age 60 for efficiency. Uh, yes, if your mother or father had a heart attack at age 45 or 50, your genetic component of risk is even higher, as you might imagine. But the number of individuals who would check yes for that is exceedingly small. So the cut point of age 60 has consistently in many studies been the inflection point where enough people will answer yes to have clinical utility and where the risk still stands at very high. So the fact that mom or dad had a heart attack or stroke at age 90 is actually not very useful. And again, although we use it as a cut point here, sure, if a patient's mother had a heart attack on an atherosclerotic basis at age 45, I'd be quite concerned about that. Good. Uh, Richard, next question. Our next question comes from the Northrop Grumman Newport News. Please go ahead. Hi, Dr. Uh, Dr. Ridker, my name is Steve Holcomb, and uh, I'm maybe one of the few non-medical people in the audience. Uh, I, I work at a, a shipbuilding company. I'm a manager of manufacturing quality. And uh, my interest in this is that, uh, and what caught my attention is, is that the, the problem you're dealing with is very similar to wh what we deal with in the manufacturing, um, the separating the type 2 from the type 1 problem, <laughs> saying uh, I don't want to reject something that's good by mistake, and I don't want to accept something that's that's not good by mistake. And, and of course, the HMOs don't like it when you provide additional treatment when it's not really called for, nor do they, nor does the patient like it when you find out you didn't give treatment you should have. So that uh, we we have a similar problem that we wrestle with, and uh, in this detection and diagnosis, and um, I guess my my comment was that and and the the. the the intermediate area is always the most difficult, but uh, I, uh, I was just going to mention that uh, out of Japan in recent years, there is another analysis method that has been used successfully in my field, but also applied to medical research. Uh, and I sent you an email on it that uh, you might get to at some point, but it's called the Mahalanobis Taguchi system. And um, the case study that I recall is uh, was applied to liver disease, detection of liver disease. And uh, because it's a non-statistical method, uh, it's often very successful with smaller sample sizes and uh, and uh, overcomes some of, some of the other liabilities that you run into in uh, regression analysis. So really my only point was just to make you aware of that and let you know there was an email uh, <laughs> buried deep in your inbox somewhere and that I really appreciate your study uh, on a personal level as well because of women uh, in my family that have, uh, that have dealt with uh, CBD and uh, an excellent article and really well written. Wonderful I'm chuckling because I don't know a whole lot about shipbuilding, but I did get your email, and actually uh, we did not ignore it. It's been forwarded on to Nancy Cook, who's the senior biostatistician on this paper, who, and uh, she was aware of this technique. And, and as you might imagine, uh, other mathematical techniques of sure. the, you know, CART, Mars, sure. uh, neural networks have also been applied. What's most interesting to us is, at the end of the day, a relatively simple model is the most easy one for docs to understand, and uh, and it seemed to work here. Yeah, I, I and, thought it was excellent. And that that graphic that you put in there that uh, showed the breakdown of the hundred thousand women and the bins that they went into was terrific. 
Stephen, thank you very much for your comments. Really wonderful to, uh, to hear from you. It's uh, uh, on the enrollment list. It has Stephen listed as ocean engineering, so um, not a healthcare person, but obviously read uh, you know, this article with great insights, and uh, that is absolutely delightful. We really appreciate your comments, and there is a tremendous amount of methodologic uh, overlap and consistency across fields. Wonderful stuff. Thanks for calling in. Richard, let's take one more call. Okay. Um, as a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, please press zero one on your touchtone phone. Is there anybody else in the queue, queue right now? No, there isn't. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, uh, uh, you know, I think we could go on uh, talking about this for a long time. I think, again, usability is really going to be the challenge here, and how do we take these tools and get them into regular, regular use. Uh, it sounds to me like at least one critical take home um, is, uh, Paul, is that we probably ought to start tech checking CRPs as a matter of routine. Well, I, I, I would I would try to lay out a couple of take-home messages, uh, if I could, uh, Chuck, just to sort of bring this to a close. I think that basically uh, the Framingham score is pretty good, but uh, we need to remind ourselves and our patients this core value that half of all heart attacks and strokes occur among those who have normal cholesterol levels and, you know, 10 to 20 percent of these uh, vascular events have no major risk factor at all. So I think we have to get over this notion of half empty, half full and just say, look, 40 to 50 years later, we have a better toolbox, we should be using it uh, if it's cost effective and widely applicable. The second would be, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, CRP has been repeatedly shown to work very nicely in men and women and older individuals, younger individuals in different populations and in different clinical settings. The data are remarkably consistent. Uh, and uh, trying to move uh, guidelines is difficult. Uh, this is obviously part of a piece of data that will be used uh, in that direction. But I think as clinicians, we can make a decision on our own about whether or not something is useful or not. Uh, the third is that the biology of this disease is really interesting. And the fact that you can have a patient with inflammation picked up with a simple blood test who's at very high risk who you otherwise would have missed is really what's exciting to us in the vascular biology community because that observation is not only about diagnosis and prediction. It's about how are we going to do drug development in the future? What are our opportunities to figure out how to target inflammation as a core value? And that's really an exciting part of the research that we've been involved in. And, of course, the genetics of this disease, very, very important. We know that it really matters. Uh, what you inherited and whether or not it's going to be a very fancy gene screen with a lot of different polymorphisms or it's just going to be the question we asked, did mom or dad have an event before a certain age? Well, it's nice that it works here. It tells us that genetics really matters. I think the third is, yeah, I, I would personally use the Reynolds risk score uh, either, either indirectly in a, as a sort of a global way of doing things or on a website. I've been using this now for quite a few months. It's sort of fun. It works. And it does change my a priori about a patient. I can't tell just looking at them across the room what their risk is going to be as well as I thought. And frankly, I would have probably guessed I'm someone who was pretty good at that. And I've learned that maybe I'm not quite as good as I thought. And last, as I pointed out, we really don't think this is about more drug. We really believe, if you look at these data carefully, it's about moving some people up in risk and some down. And to our pleasure and surprise, I think, it's about the same number of folks, and that means it's a win-win. We can actually use these data right now to get the prescriptions to the very patients who most need them and maybe avoid the prescriptions for those folks who don't need them. That's good for the healthcare system. It's good for cost. It's good for patients in terms of toxicity. 
it's just a good thing. And so uh, we're actually quite pleased with this outcome. One other thing, uh, Paul, that would probably be good to mention here at the end is that um, the, as opposed to the, the uh, Framingham score, which does put people into a clear risk category, uh, right now uh, uh, the rental score does not give you that clarity of, you know, for for you know for users like me who like real clarity and direction, I have somebody classified into a low risk, moderate risk, or high risk category, which tells me a lot about what I'm supposed to do. Rental score doesn't quite do that for you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, not sure, Chuck, what you're getting at. We we purposely kept the metric the same. So uh, if you if you think less than five percent is low risk, and five to ten, and ten to twenty are intermediate, and greater than twenty high risk, we haven't changed the outcome variable at all. Right. Those are just the numbers we need to keep in mind. Right. Yep. So uh, you're absolutely correct. If you if you clear certain thresholds and that changes your behavior, uh, then then that's on now. Now one one subtle difference, which I think listeners should be aware of something I believe very strongly in. The Framingham risk score predicts coronary risk. We're predicting total vascular risk. This is subtle but very important. Um, I think that the Framingham investigators did that 30, 40 years ago because that's what they were interested in. But I've never had a patient in my clinic say to me, Dr. Ridker, what's my risk of a heart attack <laughs> but not my risk of stroke or not my risk of a cardiovascular death? And every major clinical trial done in cardiovascular medicine for the last 20 plus years has used a combined endpoint of myocardial infarction, stroke, or cardiovascular death. So when we say a patient should take a statin or they should take aspirin or take a beta blocker or an ACE inhibitor, it's because that total combined endpoint is what we're trying to reduce. So another thing we've built into this is the endpoint here is the actual endpoint used in the clinical trials. This is very important because it says, look, now we're predicting what we actually use in evidence-based medicine to make the decision about what to treat with. You may not think that's a big deal, but remember, let's come back to women. Women on a proportionate basis suffer more strokes than myocardial infarctions, and yet the Framingham score is based on, the, on risk of heart disease largely in men. So this is actually a, uh, another attempt to really change how we do this, to get the right endpoint for these prediction models, and, and we hope again that's a that's a step forward. Fantastic! I really appreciate that. Well, we are out of time. This has really been a very fruitful conversation. I think we could continue to go on for a long time. I specifically want to thank you, Dr. Ridker, for your for your comments. Uh, just as a reminder, the next author in the room call. Uh, scheduled for Wednesday, April 18th at this same time, 2 o'clock Eastern Time. And once again, the article is in the March 7th, 2007 JAMA, Computer Tomography Screening and Lung Cancer Outcomes. We look forward to hearing from all of you on that call. Thank you and good day. This concludes today's teleconference. I'd like to thank you for your participation. To end this call, simply hang up your phone. Thank you.